Welcome to the Jewish Education Experience Podcast with your hosts, Yasmina and Ari, who will be uncovering gems of wisdom with Jewish educators from around the world. To support our podcast, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash Jewish Education Experience Podcast. Our guest today is Rabbi Aaron Horn. And Rabbi Horn is the Associate Principal of Kohelet Yeshiva High School in Marion Station, Pennsylvania. He earned his BA in biology and also his smicha from Yeshiva University. Previously, he served as Director of Middle School NCSY in New Jersey and as a rabbinic intern at the Herzliya Adas Yeshurun Synagogue in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Rabbi Horn has taught Gemara and Tanakh to adults and children alike, and he continues to do that over there at Kohelet. Um, Hello, Rabbi Horn. Welcome to our podcast, and thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's really our our pleasure. Before we dive in, I have to ask you, how was it living in Winnipeg? Okay. Um, so I, I, didn't, I didn't actually live in Winnipeg. I was there, okay. in there. I was out for about one Shabbos per month. Um, but it, yeah. was, it was really, really awesome. I really enjoyed my time there. I actually consider it very formative um, to shaping who I wanted to be as an educator. Um, I'll just tell you one awesome fact about Winnipeg. It gets so cold in the winters. First of all, when I went there for Yom Kippur, they had to de-ice the plane before takeoff. <laughs> but it gets so cold that the negative degrees of Fahrenheit and Celsius catch each other. And it's almost oh, the same thing. Wow. How cold it yeah, it's really um, fascinating. Part of the reason I ask is because uh, my husband is from Toronto and we actually lived in Hamilton, Ontario for our first mm-hmm. couple of years of marriage. And the first year we were there, it was so cold. So I totally understand about in Winnipeg how it, how it is. Did you have to plug in your car also? You know what? We actually never had to do that. In Winnipeg, every, in the winter, everyone, you have to plug your car into the outlet, even if you don't have like a plug-in car, because oh uh, it, it gets so cold, the antifreeze freezes over and the engines die. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. I See, I never knew that. We didn't have to. That's really interesting. Okay. We never had to do that in Hamilton. Will you please tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you began your journey in education? Sure. Um, it really starts when I was a kid because, you know, I had a dog. It was a nice big 60 pound, like, you know, half shepherd, half husky. Um, and I told myself, you know, like after three or four years of having a dog that I wanted to be a vet when I grew up. And then a couple of years passed by and I said to myself, if I'm going to try to help people, you know, as, as a doctor, and if I'm going to help try to help, you know, living things as a, as a doctor, I'd rather help people than animals. And I said, I wanted to, you know, go into the medical fields, but I didn't really want to spend the whole like decade, you know, in, in graduate school or medical school. So when I, towards my, the middle of my uh, high school and even beyond that, I thought to myself, maybe I'll try to do, you know, some, I, I, I always wanted to teach. So I thought about doing education, but I kind of wanted to couple it with something else. I figured maybe I'll do you know, like physical therapy and education or like podiatry, actually like feet for some reason uh, and education. Um, and then at some point in time, uh, two things happened. Basically one of my first years in YU, um, I went to the first Winnipeg retreat 
um, which prompted me to have an, a robust five or six year relationship with the Jewish community in Winnipeg. Um, and I really, really enjoyed doing, um, you know, the Chinuch the, the elements, working with those teenagers. Um, the community there is very fascinating because although it's hard to pull a Shomer Shabbos minion together, the school is a very healthy school. There's like 600 kids K through 12. Um, wow. So it, it was a high school retreat and I went there and I just, I fell in love with, you know, all of the kids and staff members that I met there. And I had really awesome and, you know, deep conversations, worthwhile conversations about life and Judaism. And I said, this is, this is something I want to do full time. Um, and then I came back to YU and I was talking to the, you know, the academic advising department there about my, you know, desire to do, you know, you know, something science-based and education-based um, and that's when they suggested that I really just, you know, just wanted to do both in a school, just, you know, you, you can do, you can teach both science and Judaic studies in a school. And that was basically what uh, urged me to, uh, to pursue a, a career in Jewish education. That's, that's actually really cool that you were able to intertwine both the biology and going into the rabbinic field. Do you still teach biology now at Kohelet? So that depends on the year, um, depends on, the, on the, the, the needs of the school in that year. This upcoming year, there's uh, f- only three bio sections in Kohelet, so I'm not needed. Last year, we had four bio sections, so I was needed. It, it depends on, uh, on, on the year. This upcoming year, no, but previously, last year, yes. Um, so it really depends on how many freshmen we have and how many classes, how many courses we're offering. Okay, I understand that. And you're only teaching... Um, high school age kids there at Kohelet? Yeah. Okay. Are there any educators that particularly you admire or influenced your direction? Yeah. So I, I like to speak about, I, I guess I can go on for a couple of different people. Um, the first one that I thought was really instructive to me as a, as a paradigm shift um, was one of my rebeim in high school. His name is Rabbi Comet. Um, Comet with a K, not like the with a C. And he taught in, uh, in, I was in Moshe Aaron Yeshiva High School, Maze, which was in South River uh, for about 15 or 20 years, um, South River, New Jersey, um, half an hour from where I grew up. And he taught me in 11th and 12th grade, um, both math and Gemara. He taught the highest level Gemara and the highest level math. And to me, having one teacher teach on both sides of the curriculum was something I never even thought was like a possibility, you know, let alone what happened to me. Um, and I thought that was such a powerful model. And when I went to, you know, when I went to, to describe, to, to start my own career, I thought that'd be very, some, something I really wanted to do. When I was in YU, um, Rabbi Dr. Carl Feit taught, um, the, he was the head of the bio department in YU at the time. Um, and he taught me introductory, introduction bio, bio for, for majors. I was a bio major. Um, and he, uh, and he was the exact same thing. It was the same model. And he was, you know, I actually once had a conversation with him and I said like, what do you do with your time? And his answer was, he basically does three things. He learns, you know, and, uh, he teaches bio and he is, you know, he was in cancer research. So he basically said, if I could construct a dream job for myself, it'd be all three of those things. And I wouldn't, you know, and I wouldn't change a thing. Um, and I thought that such a powerful model of, you know, of being able to, uh, to inculcate, you know, both sides of the curriculum. You know, I thought both of them were, were role models for me and it was something I really wanted to pass on, 
you know, and even in my teaching now, I, even especially when I do the bio, you know, Dr. Fight was able to, you know, talk uh, when it came time to, it, when you're reading the Parshios in the Creator cycle of Yaakov and Lavan's sheep, he would talk about how, you know, Yaakov, you know, may have been able to discern the laws you know, of heredity, uh, you know, her, the laws of heredity, uh, in order to uh, to figure out to help him along with the speckled and spotted sheep. And you know, when it was time, uh, when, when in in the course, when it was up to evolution, he gave you know he, he stopped giving class for a week and gave sheer, you know, on evolution and how it doesn't necessarily contradict Torah. Um, and those were, I think, really important and foundational for me in terms of you know figuring out what I wanted to do, who I wanted to be, and how I could pass that to the next generation. That sounds like a good example of being able to tie the worlds together that you know it's ultimately judaism is really it connects both of those worlds so that's really cool too how do you typically talk about god and how might this differ with the age groups that you teach um so for me you know it's it's mostly you know high school students that i interact with and although there is difference between you know a ninth grader and a twelfth grader for me, I like to treat high school kids you know, in many respects like they're adults, right? So that's how we talk to them about, you know, school culture and rules and discipline and classes. Um, and that's how we talk about God as well. You know, it's like I was talking to adults, whatever whatever I would say and talk about, you know, with, with, with adults, that's how I would, you know, for the most part, you know, interact and, and talk about God with, uh, with high school students. How do you find their um, reception? Do Are they pretty interested? Do, do you kind of have to pull it out of them? It depends on, it depends on the kid. It depends on the circumstance. You know, if you're uh, talking to, uh, to, you know, a bunch of uh, verbose, loquacious kids, it's different if you're talking to kids who are a little bit quieter. You know, if you're talking about it to kids, you know, on Saturday night at one in the morning on a Shabbaton, it's different than, you know, at 2.30 in the middle of the day on Thursday when they're, you know, they're, they're done for the week. Um, but for the most part, I find that kids are receptive and they're happy to talk. And when you treat them like adults, that they respond and they, you know, in turn, you know, live up to the challenge of being treated like adults. That makes sense. How do you create experiential moments in your classroom? Um, we were not over Zoom for the vast majority of the year. We were in person. Some people Zoomed in, but for 90% of the school populace, we were we were live and in person for probably, you know, 95% of the school year. Um, looking for those opportunities, you know, it's, it's, it's no different than anything else. When you're thinking about your, you know, your unit that you, so you have a two-week unit, a three-week unit on a specific, you know, sudya in, uh, in Gimara. Um, and, you know, you're thinking about, well, what are my opportunities to teach textual skills? What are my opportunities to teach religious, you know, religious growth? Part of that conversation, part of that prepping is, is what are the opportunities for, you know, deep, relevant, meaningful conversations um, that you can have with students? And what are the areas you can talk about? And you can, you know, when, when, when can that, how can that springboard, uh, you know, into, into the larger conversations? Um, in the best of years, I've had, you know, like really, really solid conversations to the point where, you know, one year, I think it was my second year teaching, um, I had a particularly awesome uh, group of girls in my Gemara class. And we actually ended up having like a parking lot on the board and anything that kind of was like a larger conversation, we kind of saved till Friday. We called it Friday conversations. Um, and like every single week, there was something that came up and we just schmoozed it out you know, uh, throughout, throughout the course of the day on Friday. Are the boys and girls learning, is it together for Gamara? In Kohelet, almost all the classes are separate sex. Um, we have our math classes combined. The rest of the classes 
uh, are separate. So, you know, it depends on the year. This year, you know, this upcoming year, I'll be teaching boys in Kamara. In the past, I've taught, you know, girls. It depends on the year. We have 9, 10 combined and 11 and 12 combined. So any given year, you can, you know, you could have the 9, 10 boys. You could have the 11, 12 girls. Or in theory, if you're, you know, I'm doing administration part-time as well. You know, so uh, part-time teaching, with only part-time teaching, I'm usually only teaching one Gemara class, but many, you know, many teachers in the school are teaching both genders or both grades. Okay, so it kind of depends on how the year goes and everything. Education or chinuch can be a little bit of an amorphous term. How would you define education? It's a good question. I guess I'd probably... You know, I guess I define it amorphously. You know, I don't, I don't think it takes place at any one time or any one place. It's not like you know, as soon as the bell rings, you know, the education is is done. Um, you know, the Gemara in Brachos talks about you know, sitting at the feet of Tamid Echachamim, basically, you know, just putting people in an environment where they can absorb, you know, like through like a sponge, you know, uh, absorb anything that's you know coming at them. So I think education is really any environment in which learning can happen, which, you know, granted is a very broad definition, um, you know, but it's particularly inside of a classroom when you have high school age students who are watching and observing every single thing you do, you know, education can happen at any time and in almost any place. In fact, in, in, in Gemara, there's a concept that if someone says halacha to be A, but someone else tells a story Worse, a different rabbi, you know, did B or not A, you know, oftentimes the uh, the story that is quoted is, is given more reverence, is given preference uh, over just a statement because if somebody said it, and that's really that's really instructive as to what they, they really felt strongly about it. You know, mm-hmm. so the Gemara was well aware that you know students are watching teachers at all times, you know, and that's uh, you know just just yesterday I was at a wedding of an alum from many years ago. Um, and was you know at the chuppah you know next to a different alum um, from a year or two ago, and we were just you know talking about Jewish wedding rituals and practices and you know different uh, arguments among the you know amongst um, different rishonim uh, you know or different uh, sages. And, uh, and this is you know this is education. He's not a student anymore of mine, but you know education was still happening even at you know, even at uh, six o'clock in the afternoon on uh, July twenty fifth in Muncie. And it turned that wonderful simcha into a nice teachable moment in a way. You're able to have a conversation about Jewish weddings and traditions. I like that. See, the education never stops, right? I, I, I agree. How do you help instill that love of learning with your students? You know, when it's sincere, kids will pick it up. You know, that's really, that's, I think, the most important piece. Kids, particularly high school age students, they are so quick to pick up hypocrisy, you know, and if you are telling them that you think something is inspiring, if you're not, if you're not really inspired, they're going to know in a second. If you're telling them something's important and you don't think it's really important, they're going to know and they're going to call you on it and they're going to disrespect you for it. By contrast, which is the way, you know, in an ideal world, everybody would be living their lives. You know, obviously it's, it's not practical to be inspired and, and happy in hundred percent all day and every single day. But we were, uh, if we were on our A game at all times, you know, we'd be, we'd be living and breathing, you know, the life we're, we're projecting that we are, you know, showing that we, and that's, that's, if we're able to do that, you know, that'd be, uh, that'd be fantastic. And it's, it's challenging, but that's really, uh, that's really the goal is to just to live as genuine a life as you can and, and preach the way you live. That, that definitely makes sense. I'm curious what role family play or the home in your experience 
you know, I'll quote uh, one of my uh, mentors from when I, back when I worked at NCSY. He's now in uh, in NYU, you know, but Yaakov Glasser would often say that, you know, in uh, he, he likes working with teenagers because in one Shala Shudas at an NCSY, you know, Shabbaton, you can see a kid make more growth, you know, than, than you can see with an adult in, in a decade sometimes. I don't know if you meant it literally or not, you know, but high school kids can surprise you, you know, and, wow. and when, something, when something clicks with them, you know, it, it sticks with them often, you know, and um, if you're able to, so, so students can make this jump, obviously, you know, uh, if the family is, is supportive of and encouraging religious growth and religious connection and religious, you know, taking the next steps in religious life, that's obviously going to help. Then if the family is saying, no, religion is not worthwhile, we just send you here because it's a good private school. Right. You know, that's going to, that'll obviously make a giant impact in, you know, the student's ability to, you know, to absorb, you know, what's being thrown at them, you know, Definitely. but so on the one hand, obviously family is important. You know, it's, it, it, it does make a big difference. Um, but uh, oftentimes you'll, even without family support, you know, oftentimes students will uh, will surprise you and really make leaps and growth, leaps and, uh, grow in leaps and bounds. Well, that's good to know. And from your experience that if you can find that one thing that them, that they will develop that spark to want to continue learning. What do you find to be the biggest challenge that you face as an educator? Two challenges that are kind of intertwined that kind of, at least they, they hit me pretty hard. Um, the first one is time. And the second one is imposter syndrome, where I feel like if I spent every moment of my life reading education literature, I wouldn't know enough. If I spent every second of my life learning Torah, I still wouldn't know enough of that. If I spent all of my time talking with students and helping students and you know helping students progress, I wouldn't. I still wouldn't be where I needed to be relationally. And if you try to accomplish all those three things, which I just thought of now, and you combine it with the ten other things that you could think of that you really should be spending serious time on. You know, it's it's impo- it's it's impossible um, to excel in all of those areas. Sometimes it's hard enough to excel in even one of those areas. Um, so, I, to me, the biggest challenge is is time. It's it's our most precious resource, most precious commodity. It's way too easily squandered, um, and, uh, and and it is it's a challenge because the number of minutes we have with ourselves, with our students, you know, in our preparation. You know, it's it's working against us at, at all points in time, and that ties to the second one, which is imposter syndrome. Because at a certain point, in a certain level, I feel like you know, if I even if I was spending all my time, I wouldn't know enough about X, Y, or Z, and I'm not spending all my time doing that. I'm doing a hundred other things. Um, you know, so you kind of feel like, well, you know, am I really qualified to do what I'm doing? You know, aren't there people out there that are better than me at this? So those are, at least to me, two of the two of the most daunting challenges that I encounter. How do you handle it? How do you, um, if you are showing your students that you are and you're taking the time to continue to learn and you're teaching and you you are being, showing your commitment to all these other things that you're doing? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't know exactly. I'll just tell you a stat that I heard, and this goes back at least five years, so I'm sure it's false by now. I'm sure it's more <laughs> intense, I'm meaning by which I mean, I'm sure it's more intense by now. I forgot the exact number, but I think if a doctor wanted to keep current on all medical breakthroughs, research, updates, I think they would have needed to have spend, and again, this goes back years, 60 hours a day reading. Wow. That's obviously impossible. Um, 
So, you know, I, I think the same way, you know, the same way everybody does. It's, you know, and this, you, you may not be the most qualified person in the world for the position you're in. That might be the case, you know, but then again, you know, there you are. And the number of people who are going into education or any given field are limited and right. none of them are perfect. None of them are going to be doing everything well. And, you know, your goal is to try to, to try to set yourself goals and try to accomplish them and con- to continue to become, you know, a better teacher, better administrator, better educator, you know, every year and to try to, over the course of time, you know, perfect and hone um, some of the parts of your craft and over time to become, even if not perfect, but certainly better. Definitely. That's for sure the goal. And you mentioned it before about students and children in general. They're so good at really being able to tell whether you're being real or not. You know, if if it's something that you're being your authentic. Mm -hmm. And so it's good that you're you're mentioning that, you know what, you might not be perfect. You might feel like there are times when, okay, maybe I don't know as much as I should know, or maybe I'm not doing this, this and this, but you're human and you're able to show your students that too. Right. And, 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 correct. And I think that's important to show them a model of people who are not finished products yet, right. you know, and people who are growing and struggling and, and, and growing nonetheless, despite the struggle. Um, how do you stay motivated? That's a good question. One of the, um, every single year for the last you know, couple of years, seven years, we had her by Dr. Gil Perla was the head of school at Kohelet. And in the summers, he used to do um, admin retreats. And one of the years after a particularly challenging year, he actually did a, did an exercise with us in the summer of every administrator should think of two different categories of, of uh, experiences of things that happened in the school day, right? One of them was called light up moments. And one of them was burnout moments or tasks. And one of the things that light you up as an educator, you can do them all day, every day, you know, and one of the things that if you did these things, you know, all day, every day, you'd hate yourself and hate your job and want to quit tomorrow. Right? And basically to concoct, uh, you know, a list and to use the collective strength of the team to really think about, well, now that we know each other's personalities and we're all working on the same, in, towards the same goals, and we know what lights some people up and burns them out. And, you know, what are the things that we can watch out for? You know, what are, when, when can you check in with your colleague and say, hey, I noticed you have the following three items on your plate this week, which you're going to hate all of them. Can I take one of them off of you? I don't mind them so much. Right? Or this is an opportunity, you know, did, did you notice X, Y, or Z? I know that that kind of, you know, experience will light you up. Um, you know, so that's, that I think is one of the most critical, especially as a team, uh, ways in which you can stay motivated as an educator by helping each other out. You know, and if that doesn't happen, if that's not your, if that doesn't happen or it can't happen. So to take some self-care, you know, to, to make sure that you're taking, uh, you know, you're taking a day if you need it. You know, you're uh, and and during that day to to make sure you're you're spending the time on you. You know, if you feel like, you know, as they say, an empty cup can't you know you can't pour from an empty cup. Um, so uh, sometimes that means you know taking uh, taking that day to make sure you recharge. You know, most most people I imagine don't use anywhere close to all of their sick days. You know, to take one or two a year to say I need to recharge right now. You know, I think it's a, a noble thing to do. I definitely agree with that, and I like that idea about what lights you up, what burns you up. Um, Thank you. I did also. Might have to use that. <laughs> yeah. What advice would you give to new educators who are really just beginning their journey in the field? Okay. Um, so this is an idea that I actually got from my own brother, who's also in education. His name is Rabbi Jesse Horn. He's in uh, Yeshiva Kotel. Okay. Very um, cool. 
Thank you. And, you know, it basically comes down to watching colleagues. Now, it's kind of it's kind of crazy because a teacher can go years without watching another teacher teach, despite the fact that at any free moment they have in school, there are probably a score of other teachers in that building who are teaching, you know, but to, for, for someone who's new, you know, my brother told me my first year, he said, go find five teachers and watch their class in your first semester. You know, and see what are the things they do well? What are the things that you think you can copy? What are the things that you, that you think you do differently? Um, and if you can find you know, in any school, you should be able to find, especially as a new teacher, five people that you respect who have one class period that you don't teach you know, to, to find those educators uh, and to sit with them. And when you've exhausted the people in your own building, go to your, go to your supervisor and say, you know, I want to go watch teachers from another school. You know, one of the things that I really found myself lucky when I first moved into administration, you know, I, uh, I asked my supervisor again, then was Red Pearl. And I said, I'd like to go to spend one day a year, basically talking to administrators from other schools. And it didn't happen every year, but it did happen in several of the years, three or four of the years where I went to, you know, different schools and sat down and, you know, scheduled, you know, months in advance, different meetings with different educators, different administrators, and just to talk through some of the issues that I'm going through, some of the questions that I have to see how other people do it because you're, you don't have to recreate the wheel. And often we forget that. It's true. We definitely forget that. I know I'm guilty of that sometimes myself that, you know, you're in, when you're, we're in school, it's kind of like you're taught, Oh, no copying, right? Now let's copy. But then when you're as educator, it's like, you kind of have to copy, right? You know, right. You especially, learn from right. especially, you know, in today's day and age, it's like open source everything, you know, like people are, I've experienced very few educators who are like possessive over the things they've, you know, they've done. Right. And most people are more than happy to help you out. Most Jewish educators know that you're on the same team as them, even if you live in the same community. And for sure, if you live in a different geographic community, you know, these are, um, these are people who are, who went into the business to help other people, you know, so to help another educator is, uh, for most of them, just, you know, they're thrilled and happy to do it. It's true. Yeah, I definitely agree. How can we help our students to build a proper Torah foundation? So I, I think communication is really one of the most important pieces, you know, to have different, different organizations talk to each other to, I guess, in a certain sense, form like a web of support, you know, between camp and youth group and chesed and out of school learning um, and the home, you know, the partnership with home is huge, you know, it's, and particularly this is, you know, what, what a parent can say or do in five seconds, you know, even unwittingly can undermine, you know, months of religious gains, you know, when a parent, okay. a parent hears a kid quote, like a medrash or something they personally, you know, wouldn't uh, place great emphasis on, right? It, it, one, if they say something like that's a dumb medrash or something like that, you know, it's as opposed to there's an interesting approach or talking to your kid about, you know, the difference, you know, what our family subscribes to, what the school hashkafa is, you know, those are, those are opportunities, those are moments where uh, you have the opportunity for, for real partnership. And sometimes, sometimes the opposite happens. And that's, it's a chaval because you, know, you can really, uh, it causes erosion very quickly. Definitely. What does successful Jewish education in the future look like to you? I do want to answer that one because I think it's, I think it's really an important question. You know, there's a maxim, which is a famous maxim, which is love what you do and you won't work a day in your life. You know, that was, well, unfortunately was talking to adults and students don't really have a choice of whether they're going to be in school or not. But I think there's a lot you can learn from it, right? So when you're, when you're setting up a, when you're setting up a system for kids, it's, it's really not that different, right? If you can give them a experience that they like, then they won't feel like they're working either. If you have inspired educators, if you're working with teachers, right? 
every everyone has had a home run teacher, a class that is awesome, or even if it's hard and stressful, a teacher that believed in them, connected with them, class was inspiring. And often, even if you're working hard, it doesn't feel like you are. You feel like it, it, it clicks, it makes sense. You know, and if, if we can do that, you know, if every class was like that, you know, we'd be sitting pretty in any given school, um, I think is the first part. And the second part I think is, it was kind of an acronym I've developed over time, which is, I call it, you know, when, when, when our schools are brimming Judaism and then brim is actually an acronym for B-R-I-M, which is, if we can showcase a religion, which is beautiful, relevant, inspirational, and meaningful, Right then, then we're gonna win. That that's how wow. we win. If it's if it's just eh, whatever it is, if that's just a class, it's another class. Okay, that's that's not great, right? Obviously, it can't happen necessarily in every single homish class, right? But if we're asking ourselves, are the lessons that we're preparing, is the content that we're going to discuss, the messages that we're giving, are they meaningful? Are they relevant? Are they inspirational? Right? Because that's you know, unfortunately, the rest of the world is grabbing their attention. If you're going to present a boring, outdated, archaic view of Judaism, so that's not going to be a successful model of education, right? By contrast, if you can show, an edu- if, you can, if you can demonstrate a beautiful, relevant, inspirational, meaningful lifestyle when one commits to authentic Judaism, all of a sudden, that's a different story. So now I have to ask you this bonus question. How do we do that? How do we, uh, our lifestyle, this is beautiful and relevant, relevant and inspirational and meaningful how do we convey that so that's a hard question that that's it's an easy it's an easier question to answer but a harder question to do right. i think it all, i think a lot of it ties together right if you have educators who are motivated who are not burnt out who understand you know their role and how they can achieve it who are working towards becoming better you know i, I think it, we, we get a lot of the way there um you know, again, it's 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 hard to keep uh, keep you know the 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 view of the forest when you're working one tree at a time. You know, through the course of a November or a December or a February or a March. You know, but if 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 we take a step back and we think about what are we here to do, right? What do we, and the answer most likely is not teach Bamidbar Perek Gimel, right? If we think about like we're we're here and there are students and many of them will leave our halls and never have formal Jewish education again, unless we make them want it. Right. Maybe make them want it is a bit too hard, right? Unless we can, unless we can show them the beauty of it, right? And, and if, if, if we can show them the beauty of it, so then they're going to want it on their own. It's true. Again, it's not necessarily an easy thing to do. You know, people, everyone will do it better and worse at different days, weeks, months of their year, even years of their career. But, uh, but I, I think that's, uh, that to me is a path a path towards successful Jewish education. Well, I hope that uh, it can inspire other educators to con- want to do that and to continue to do that so that we can have continuity and continue to inspire Jewish children to want to continue to be Jewish. It's definitely a challenge. That's the goal, though. But that's the goal, for sure. Well, um, Rabbi Horn, thank you so much for joining this evening we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us we definitely learned a lot from you oh it is my pleasure thank you very much for having me on the show i appreciate it keep fighting the good fight (laughs) 